Well, as my dear sister Tata likes to say, God is good? All the time? All the time? God is good. All right. Well, I think now I can officially start the service, right? Um, thank you, Tata. We love it when you do that for us. I don't know about you. I relatively enjoyed school. I didn't mind it too much, but there was one thing that I did not like in school, and I think I probably am in good company here, and that was when we had the dreaded assignment of a group project. Now, this sounds good on paper, right? It sounds good, a group project, right, that we get to all carry the load and, and through that hopefully get a good grade. But what ends up happening through group projects? One person does all of the work. It sounds a little bit like, uh, I'm not going to go there, never mind. I was going to talk about a different government system. Uh, but it sounds like, a really tough thing, right? One person doing all of the work, and then through that, what ends up happening? That one poor person has to carry the load for every single other person, and then they get the credit. The other person who did not, none of the work gets all of the credit. I never liked group projects, because I was usually the guilty soul that would try to end up doing the work and I would begrudgingly look up at the class and look to the side of me of these people and think, you did nothing. <laughs> you don't deserve to be here. <laughs> it's hard in life, right? When people take credit for things that they didn't do, when people do things that perhaps they don't deserve the glory for, but yet they still receive the glory for it. Today we are going to be talking a little bit about that. We're going to be talking a little bit about what it means to give glory and to receive glory, and more importantly, to give glory to the right thing. So in order to help us do that, we're going to be opening up to Daniel chapter 2 in God's Word today. So if you would, turn to Jan Daniel chapter 2, and we're going to be reading verses 24 onward, uh, although we're not going to be reading all of the text, we're going to be going through these passages here today. So if you remember from last week what happened in the book of Daniel, um, Daniel got the news that if he did not interpret Nebuchadnezzar's dream, what would happen? Well, he would be sentenced to death. And through that death, what would happen next, right? That not only Daniel would die, but all of the wise men around him would die. So Daniel goes to his friends and begins to ask God for insights into changing the situation so that he can interpret Nebuchadnezzar's dream. And through prayer and prayer and prayer, what ends up happening? God reveals to Daniel Nebuchadnezzar's dream and gives him a way for his life to be rescued and hopefully the life of his friends. So after praising God, we're now picking up where Daniel left off in, in verse 24 here. So it says the following. Then Daniel went to Arioch, whom the king had appointed to execute the wise men of Babylon, and said to him, Do not execute the wise men of Babylon. Take me to the king, and I will interpret his dream for him. Arioch took Daniel to the king at once and said, I have found a man among the exiles from Judah who can tell the king 
what his dream is. So right off the gate here, right out of the gate here, after Daniel takes time to praise God, he goes back to the king's executioner and he tries to tell him good news. I I can interpret Nebuchadnezzar's dream, but then what does Daniel do specifically in verse 24? He tells him, do not execute the wise men of Babylon. Now, I find that really interesting, church. He tells them, do not execute the wise men of Babylon. You see, these wise men of Babylon were charlatans. They did not, they did not speak truthfully within the kingdom of Babylon. In fact, they were all lying and all making up things in order for Nebuchadnezzar to have an ear to them. But what does Daniel do? He comes with the truth of God in this situation, and then he asks for mercy to be given to the other wise men. You see, our faith is one of grace, right? We we sing songs about grace. We sing praise about God's grace. We talk about God's grace. We look at the resurrection in this season and think about God's grace. If you did not know, grace is receiving the unmerited favor of God. What does that mean? Grace means that you receive something that you did not deserve. So we do not deserve God's goodness, but what does God do? He gives us his goodness anyways. We do not deserve his sonship or his daughtership, but what does God do? He makes us daughters and he makes us sons. We do not deserve his blessings, but yet God does what? He still blesses us. He still provides for us. He still helps us in times of need. Even when we are suffering, we can still receive the grace of God by having peace even in the midst of hardship, right? This is all a product of God's good grace. And we need to preach and learn and study about God's grace because it is a good thing. But we also need to remember that God is a God of mercy. So where grace is receiving unmerited favor, mercy is withholding punishment deserved. There's a difference there, and it matters. You see, when we receive God's mercy, it means that we receive what? That we do not, or I should say it this way, that we do not receive the punishment that we deserve. You see, we have this tendency to look at other people and compare them to ourselves, right? We do this in all sorts of ways. We do it, are they making more money than us? Do they drive a better car than us? Do they have a bigger house than us? And we compare ourselves with other people. And we oftentimes do this too with how good we are. We think to ourselves, well, at least I'm not as bad as this person. Have you met Phil? The guy does not have it together at all, right? And we do this, why? 
Because I think deep down inside, we recognize our brokenness. We recognize that there are parts of who we are that are not as good as they should be. And then what do we do? We look to somebody else to make ourselves feel better. We need to be very careful of this. Why? Because it causes us to become the center of our own lives. It causes us, too, to look at others in a wrong light. Because because comparison is the thief of joy, church. And when you compare yourself to other people, what you are training yourself to do is to make yourself the center of your life at the expense of somebody else. You know, when we sing, Jesus loves the little children, the heart of that song is a heart of unification. It's a heart of recognizing that we are all very different, right? I'm very different than all of you in this room. Not just because of my nationality or my age or my size. All those things are true. But I'm different because God made me different and God made you different. But the beauty is, is that despite our differences, we're all still what? People in the eyes of God. We all still have the opportunity to be his sons and his daughters and receive the blessing of that grace. You know, something my wife oftentimes tells me is, it's hard to believe at times, but so good to know that God loves us all equally, right? Because we like to think, God, look how good I am. I'm such a good little boy, you know? And to think that somehow God loves me more. But that it can, could not be further from the truth. God does not love me more, even if I'm a pastor, even if I'm preaching a sermon, even if I live the most upright life in the world, more than he loves you. God loves you just as much as he loves me. Now, let me be clear here. Because we live in a time where people are saying, well, God is love, God is love, Jesus is love, and that is true. But just because God loves me the same or loves you the same doesn't mean that God is still pleased with my actions or pleased with your actions. And that's where we see God's mercy. God's mercy is when he withholds punishment in our lives that we deserve. Here's the thing, church. The wise men were charlatans. They were people who were preying on others with false truth, with things that were not true. And they were using that in a way to manipulate, to gain prominence in the kingdom, and to allow themselves to be elevated at the expense of others. It is true that Daniel, if he wanted to, could have allowed all those other people to be executed. And in some ways, you could say that he was justified, right? I mean, this is the kingdom, after all, that came against Judah. This is the kingdom, after all, that enslaved his people. This is the kingdom, after all, that believes in false gods and false ideas. Wouldn't it be right for these people to be executed and for them to finally reap what they sowed? Yes. In some ways, 100% true. Because you cannot have 
God's love without God's justice, right? And in very many ways, he could have allowed justice to take in place here. But what does he decide to do instead? He decides to show mercy. Because you see, that's the beautiful thing about our God, is yes, he is a God of justice. Yes, he's a God of grace. But he is also a God of mercy. And hear me well, church, God wants us to be a people of mercy. It's why it's one of the Beatitudes. It's why that God calls his disciples to extend mercy to others. When Peter asks Jesus how many times he should forgive somebody, why do you forgive somebody? You forgive somebody because they've done something what? Wrong. Jesus tells him to continue to do it. Not just seven times, right? but to continue to do it, to continue to forgive. Why? Because mercy and forgiveness are at the heart of God. You know, it is very obvious that we all want to receive mercy, right? If we do something wrong, and maybe we did something wrong to a coworker or a family member or our spouse, we hope they show mercy. If you're a child, you hope your parents show you mercy, right? (laughs) All the time. But when it comes to giving mercy, why is it that we struggle in doing that? You know, sometimes we could be so vicious in our quest for justice that we can forget that mercy is also at the heart of God. Amen? So what does Daniel do in this moment? He extends mercy to people who do not deserve it. And make no mistake, we will read in the coming weeks that these people will try to kill Daniel and his friends despite the mercy that Daniel shows them. And that's not a cautionary tale. It can be in some ways. But that is a reminder that we are to do good despite somebody else's actions. And in fact, I would say that Jesus even taught us that much. That we are to be the kinds of people that despite the consequences, despite the outcomes, despite what happens in front of us, that we are to maintain a godly character despite those who might persecute us. Jesus exemplified this like no other person in history. He exemplified mercy at times where he could have given judgment. And make no mistake, your life, and the reason why you're in this room, is a product of God's grace, but it's also a product of God's mercy. Aren't you thankful for the mercy that God shows us? Church, we cannot forget our need for mercy. Something that I think happens very tragically within the Christian world is I've seen this happen time and again, where somebody comes to faith, right? And we want to celebrate that. That is a beautiful miracle when somebody for the first time says, Jesus, I want you to be the Lord and Savior of my life. I hope we can celebrate those moments all the time. But so often, I've seen this happen, where somebody says yes to Jesus, And it's like they forget his mercy, and they forget his grace, and all they latch on to is God's judgment. 
And then they latch on to what else? They latch on to their own merit. And they start to think of themselves more highly than they ought to. In fact, I would say that Scripture does great work at trying to remind ourselves to not think of ourselves too highly. One of the most greatest stories in Scripture comes out of John chapter 8. In fact, it's one of my favorite stories in Scripture. And John chapter 8 tells the story of the woman caught in adultery. And I love this story because it's so powerful. If you don't know it, I'll just tell you a, a brief highlight of what happens in the story. There is a woman and she is caught in adultery. And in the Jewish customs and principles, if a person is caught in adultery, they're oftentimes presented. And if evidence is found that they truly were adulterous, then in that moment they can be executed. And oftentimes the way that execution would work is they would dig a little bit out of the ground, the soil. They would throw the person in the middle and then they would stone them to death so that it stood as a monument to others of what happens when you sin. So this woman is caught in adultery and it's very obvious that this woman is caught in adultery not because the political system of its day is trying to be a good and righteous one but rather because they're trying to trap Jesus Christ. Why? Because Jesus continues to show mercy to people. And this is offending the political leaders of his day. And so they try to set him up and ask him, what to do, right? We don't know, but Jesus ends up kneeling down and writing in the sand. And we don't know exactly what Jesus wrote in the sand, but profoundly he stands up. And now it's his time to show judgment to this girl. But masterfully, Jesus says these words. He says, he who is without sin, throw the first stone." And what is Jesus doing in that moment? Jesus is exposing the reality that we are all broken. Romans 3, 10 through 12 says it this way, that there is no righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. And Jesus in this moment exposes the depravity of man. He shows them that we are all broken people, that we are all with our own sins in this world, that in some ways because of that, how could we show judgment to others? So Jesus is putting up a mirror on their lives and exposing the fact that these people have allowed themselves to grow in their own form of self-righteousness without growing in their understanding of God's mercy and grace. So what ends up happening in that moment? Well, the oldest to the youngest begin to leave. And Jesus, looking at the woman, approaches her and picks her up. And his next words are so powerful. He asks this broken woman who is about to face the end of her life in such a horrific way. And what words does Jesus give her in this moment? Because you see, in this moment, 
there was only one person who could remain standing. When Jesus shared those words, he who is without sin throw the first stone, everybody left, but guess who didn't? Jesus didn't leave. Why? Because he was the only one without sin. He was the only one that could throw a stone. He was the only one that could righteously say, you've done evil in the eyes of God, and for that you're going to face punishment. But what does he give her as his words? He asks her, woman, where are your accusers? Woman, where are your accusers? The NIV says it, where are they? Has no one to condemn you? And then Jesus, helping her up, leaves her with something else. The perfect picture of God's mercy and grace but also his justice. He says, neither do I accuse you. Go and sin no more. So church, we are called to have mercy. We are called to have grace, but we do not take advantage of God's mercy and abuse God's mercy and think to ourselves, well, Jesus will just forgive me anyways, right? Why do we not do that? Because that cheapens God's grace. It cheapens his mercy. And when we abuse those things, we are doing what? We are effectively putting Jesus back on the cross and not taking in, in the fullness of our hearts the grace and mercy of God. I wonder, church, are you a person of mercy? Let's continue reading. So Ariok took Daniel, verse 25, to the king at once and said, I have found a man among the exiles from Judah who can tell the king what his dreams means. The king asked Daniel, also called Belteshazzar, Are you able to tell me what I saw in my dream and interpret it? Daniel replied, no wise man, enchanter, magician, or diviner can explain to the king the mysteries he has asked about. <laughs> I love scripture. Because when I read these stories, I think to myself, Daniel, what are you doing, man? Like, you just, you just shook off your death. And then this guy goes to bat for you, and then it's your moment to get the glory and be able to announce to others that I have the interpretation of your dream. And then what does he do there? He tells them, well, nobody can actually do this. Just wanted to let you know, in case you didn't realize it, that this is not possible. And I love that, because what Daniel is doing there is he's actually demonstrating truth. You see, he's letting the king know in some ways that what he asked cannot be done. That sure, there's all these offices of people that like to lie and say that they can do all of these magical things, but that is not a power that humans have. And you might think, well, gosh, you know, people were pretty gullible years ago, but how many of us still to this day fall for those false promises that people offer? 
You know, those get-quick-rich schemes or the listening to the astrology on the newspaper or online and going to fortune tellers and what have you. We still, to this day, fall into these same traps. But Daniel is very clear that nobody can do these kinds of things, king. But I love it that he doesn't stop there. Let's read verse 27 and 28. So he says, no wise man can do it. But in verse 28, he says this, but there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. That just excites my soul. There is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. And what is Daniel demonstrating so masterfully to us right here is that we need to give glory to God, church. Amen? We are called to magnify God and to give him the glory. If Daniel wanted to in this moment, he could have, in the group project, right, given himself all the credit. He could have said to himself, well, guess what? I'm pretty special. I'm made out of different stuff. All of these other guys, I don't know what they're doing, but have you met me? And he doesn't do that at all. Instead, what does he do? He gives God the glory. He continues in praising the Lord. We talked about last week about how praise is what? Giving the right honor to where honor is due. And Daniel is effectively in this moment praising who God is to a man who doesn't know him. Church, if that can't preach... Y'all can leave, because that is the truth of what we need to do as Christians, is that we need to be the kinds of people that are bringing glory to God for who he is, not who we are. Let me make this clear. Kevin, Pastor Kevin, I am not a good person. Uh, There are many things that, that are wrong in my life, that are broken in my life, that that are just not good. Any goodness that I have in front of you, any character that I've been able to develop is a product of the Holy Spirit's work in my life, church. The love that I have for my children, for my wife, for you as my congregants and as a pastor is not a product of the greatness that was in me or the greatness of my mom and dad to raise me. It is a product of the Holy Spirit working in the lives of many people, including myself, to create a better person that you see in front of you. I believe I'm the person I was meant to be, but that is only still a product of God's Spirit in my life, church. And the same is true for you. And I want to give glory not to myself for that, but I want to give glory to my God for that, because He is making me somebody better than what I was a day ago or a year ago. The question now lies, what is he doing with you? Or what are you allowing him to do in you, church? But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. Daniel wants Nebuchadnezzar to know where truth comes from. Where power comes from. I like this quote from Billy Graham. He says this, We glorify Christ when we live for God, trusting, loving, and obeying Him. 
We glorify Christ when we live for God, trusting, loving, and obeying him. I think, sadly, many of us think that the only ways we can bring glory to God is when we make ourselves bigger and better, right? You know, I can bring glory to God if I accomplish this thing. Then I can bring glory to God. No. You bring glory to God in many of the small stuff that we get to engage in on a daily basis. If you're a parent, you bring glory to God when you show and demonstrate to your children the consistency of your character. You bring glory to God if you are a teacher or if you work in, in, in some field of influence of people. You bring glory to God when you speak the right words, when you speak truth to others. You bring glory to God even when people do not hear you using your words but see you living out certain actions. It kills me. It kills me, church. When I meet people or hear of stories and the bad guy of the story was some Christian. You know, don't get me wrong. What you see on film is an exaggeration of the truth. But it still happens, right, in this world where, where you find out after the fact that the person you're having the biggest argument in your life with is a Christian and you just go, how? How? What happened to grace? What happened to mercy? And you just almost wonder if they're following a different religion. Or if they are following a religion or going to church, you wonder, wonder if they've cleaned their ears in a while. Look, I don't mean this to be overly hard on any one individual, but it is a reminder of the character that we need to keep. And I believe that if we as a church continue to try to strive for a character that is giving glory to God, what is going to happen is we are going to change and the people around us are going to change. You see, psychology would teach us this much, that when we focus on things that are negative, what ends up happening is we become more negative. We as a people, church, need to have an attitude of gratitude towards our Lord. And when we do that, there is a chemical reaction that happens in the brain, but I believe that it's influenced by a spiritual force, that when we focus on the good things, on when we focus on glorifying God, through that process, we are allowing the Holy Spirit to move in deeper ways in our lives. And we are allowing God an invitation to say, use me, Lord. And make no mistake, the more we say, use me, Lord, the more God will use you. And the more we will see wonderful things as a product of it. Church, do you want to see wonderful things? The easiest way to do that is to live a life that gives glory to God. It's not hard. Don't overcomplicate it. All it can start with is just a prayer of saying, Lord, help me, help me allow you to increase in my life and me to decrease. Lord, Help me feel convicted when I do something wrong. I want to feel bad. Help me feel bad <laughs> when I'm doing something wrong. How about that? Do you believe God enough to use his spirit to convict you? 
Then when you feel that conviction, don't go, oh, I don't like that feeling. Stop. Say, Lord, I repent of that sin. I repent of that sin. And I'm going to move on now. Because I want my life to bring glory to you and not glory to some other kingdom that we know of, right? Daniel brings glory to God. And in the following verses, I encourage you to read it on your own time. He goes and he reveals the mystery to the king. And it's an incredible story. It's worth reading this week on your own time. And he reveals powerfully what's going to happen to Babylon and the following nations that precede Babylon. And it's exciting and it's incredible. And as a product of all of that, Nebuchadnezzar is just humbled. And he even starts to give glory to Daniel's God. Because see, that is the byproduct. That when you give glory to God, you're giving an invitation for others to glorify him too. I don't know of very many people that when they don't receive something good in their lives, that they don't go and question that person of, well, how did you get that goodness in your lives? Or, or, or when somebody is generous, that they don't, in turn, look back to that person and wonder why they're being generous. You see, when you bring glory to God, you're inviting other people to see who God is. And that's what Daniel does, is instead of bringing the credit to himself, he brings the credit to God, and now Nebuchadnezzar is able to see the God of Israel. Amazing. Church, this is our purpose. We are called to glorify God in everything, amen? We are called to glorify God in everything. We are to bring God glory in all that we do. And how we succeed, which is oftentimes the harder one, right? We struggle to thank God when we succeed. But also we need to glory God, give glorify, glorify God in how we fail, in how we love, in how we respond to hatred, in how we suffer, we honor God and hold on to his truth and love. This is one of our greatest weapons against the enemy in this world, is glorifying God. And a reminder of this is present in the book of Revelation, chapter 12, verse 11, that they triumphed over him by the blood of the Lamb, so by God's grace, and by what? By the word of their testimony. Our testimonies, our lives, who we are deep down inside is meant to bring glory to God, church. And our, I want our church to bring glory to God, amen? I want the things that we do, the conversations that we are about, the deeds that we commit ourselves to, to shine to this neighborhood that this church is about bringing glory to God. And I think that we can do that. I think we are doing that, but I'm so excited for us to grow in that even more because I think that we're just scratching the surface, church, and I think we have a real opportunity here, church, to continue to think about how to bring glory to God. Let's not overcomplicate it, church, but let's look to God and look to each other and think about what are the simple ways we can bring glory to his name. I know we can do it. I know that we can do it. But we can only do it as a church if we commit ourselves to do it together.
we must decrease so that he can increase. And in doing so, what happens? We get to see goodness furthered in this world. This is the beauty of it, that when we give glory to God, we give him room to show up. This week, I want you to think about how can I bring glory to God in my life? What are you doing in your life that brings glory to him? If you're finding it hard to find any one thing that brings glory to him, then guess what? We can work on that. Come find me. Come find one of the elders. We will find a way for you to bring glory to God in what you're doing. Maybe it's with that that train of children that followed Michaela outside of the room. Maybe you can bring glory to God by loving on some kiddos. Maybe you can bring glory to God by getting involved in some of the ministry teams that we have in our church. Church, I have never been to a church, big or small, that hasn't had a need for more volunteers to help out with the children, to help out with facilities, to help out with things that we have yet to think about yet. Guess what? If we're not doing it and you feel passionate about it, we'll figure it out. If God's in it, he'll bless it. So what are, what are you doing that brings glory to God? Is there something that you can add or change to further bring glory to his name? Do it this week. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you, Lord, that you are the God who moves in our lives. You are the God worthy of our praise. And I pray, Father, that as you continue to grow and work on our church, Father, that we would glorify you, that we would be a people truly set apart in this city to bring glory to your name, Lord, to change the fabric of our culture in ways that bring honor to you, Lord. I believe that is what you are calling us to as a people, and we are trusting you to help us through it so that we can bring glory in all that we do. We love you, Lord, and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.